Is success really just reserved for others? Is there a secret sauce that actually makes someone more successful and truly happy in their career? What roadblocks typically hold people back from living their best life at work? What's been preventing you from taking that next step? Is it really possible to love Mondays more? Hi there, I'm Brenda Pearson, and I'm a career happiness coach. And I work with clients every day to address questions just like these. Over a span of 20 plus years, I've been fortunate to contribute to the career acceleration and development of so many talented individuals. As a coach and leader at the Ivy Business School, I worked with thousands of MBA students to successfully help them launch their next phase of their career. Along the way, I met many truly talented and inspiring individuals. And often those that were just students became my greatest teachers. Well, we have an exciting guest today, Stephen Chalesky, aka Shed. He is a heavily sought after speaker, coach, advisor, and now adding author to this list. Stephen has a book coming out in October called Speak Up Culture, When Leaders Truly Listen, People Step Up. In a world riddled with polarization, cancel culture, tribalism, I honestly cannot think of a better time for a book like Speak Up Culture. On a personal note, this interview is absolutely a full circle moment, as we'd met well over 15 years ago during Stephen's final year at the Ivy Business School. And I knew then, and, and I recall a specific conversation where I conveyed to you that I knew you were meant for greatness. I even suggested that you're going to be a keynote speaker and you've become that plus so much more. So first off, I just want to thank you so much for joining me in the inaugural season of the TGIM podcast and welcome you. Thank you so much. I I remember many meetings in your office at Ivy and I do remember one where I was particularly nervous and I mean, gosh, we could have a whole conversation on that, but just a competitive environment and you can't help but compare yourself to others and you just sort of reassured me. And though I didn't necessarily believe the words that were coming out of your mouth at the time, I knew that you meant them. And I'm so delighted that some, gosh, yeah, that was 2008, 2009, some near 15 years later, we're having this conversation, Brenda. It's a delight to be here with you and with your audience. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, Thank you for that. I want to first off, congratulate you on your first book. I am yet to be an author, but can appreciate it is not for the faint of heart. Our audience needs to know that this book, Speak Up Culture, it is going to be an instant classic. And we shared in a conversation we had earlier, I believe it should be mandatory reading for leaders today. I I'd love, <laughs> I figured you would. I'd love to start off. Uh, I'm going to jump forward. Uh, I'm not going to do this in any linear fashion, but I would love to start off with the acknowledgement section. You, in your book, can you share this moving story of your grandfather, Zadie Ben, which, by the way, would have been his 107th birthday on the day that we're recording this. Yep. I thought it would be a wonderful way if you could share the story and perhaps tie it into how this has shaped who you are today. I mean, it's it's a very long story, but and by the way, it'll be my next book. So we can talk about that. I'm going to call Amazing. it, I think, working title, The Book of Ben. But I mean, we all, Brenda, have people 
in our lives, you know, and you are one of these people in my life that my my life is different because of our relationship. You were one of those people that that sent me on on paths that gave me belief in myself, that gave me direction um, of what to do and what not to do. And we all have folks in our lives who play a mentorship role, whether we have a personal relationship with them or not. You know, you you can have a a one way, I think it's called a parasocial relationship with a celebrity, but you admire them and how they show up and what you feel that they stand for, that they can they can have an impact on you. You can emulate. And so my grandfather has definitely been one of those people for me. He's a Holocaust survivor. So, you know, his life story in a nutshell, though it's a it's a big nut, is in I'll sort of start that it when he was in grade five, he lived in rural a rural Polish town. And he was in a mixed school of different religions because there wasn't an, enough Jewish kids in his community to form a Jewish school. And so he had a teacher in grade five who was anti, an anti-Semitic teacher. And my grandfather taught me, though I've never taken this advice, he said, don't hit first, but if someone hits you, hit twice, twice as hard back and in return. And so he finally fought back against this anti-Semitic teacher. And that was his last day of formal education ever, grade five. That day, he knew that if he went home, he'd get in trouble with his parents. So instead, he went to a farmer in the area, bought some chickens, went to the market, sold it for more money, came back home at the end of school time and said, Dad, I have good news and I have bad news. The good news is here's some money. The bad news is I got kicked out of school today. And he, his father was a butcher, his father's father was a butcher, and so on and so forth. He be, was a butcher and became a butcher in the family business before World War II and then after World War II. Ends up fighting in, the, in, in, the, in World War II with the invading Germans, survives a prisoner of war camp, escapes that prison, gets married to my grandmother, Eva. They were in hiding then for the remainder of the war, so for about four or five more years. And I mean, his story of survival is so interesting because there are so many Holocaust survivor stories of those in ghettos and concentration camps. And there are the well-known stories of Oscar Schindler with Schindler's List that Spielberg did, you know, of these well-known stories. But here's one guy who knew that he did not want to hop on another train and go to a ghetto or go to a working camp or go to a concentration camp. And he chose, as an entrepreneur would, to go off the beaten path and do it his way. And because of it, a group of seven, which then became five, survived because of him. And because of his <laughs> his cunning, his perseverance, his instincts, his common sense and smarts, he survived my uncle and my dad were later born and I have a life. And he was very open to speak about his story because as opposed to so many other Holocaust sur sur survivors where so much was done unto them, he actually had some agency and authorship in how his story went. He didn't, he somehow he did the Holocaust on his own fricking terms, which is crazy. And he was willing to share that story with anyone who would listen. He was, he was gregarious and so, yeah, I had a very special relationship with him. Relatives and friends of his see me in 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 him. And we're very similar for for better or for worse because he's not perfect. But yeah, he's a huge inspiration and has given me a ton of courage to also go off the off the beaten path in my own life and career.
And that's exactly what you have done. I recall you starting off in a corporate leadership program of a mm -hmm. very large organization and making a few right turns, so to speak, and, and some different different choices. So for people who do not know you, and I can't yes. imagine who wouldn't know you, maybe can you provide a, a little bit of background in terms of this squiggly path that, that you have been on and, and, and how it's led you where you are today? Yeah. Well, I'm sure there are lots of folks who don't know me. So mm -hmm. hi. I mean, there's a, one of my favorite quotes right now is from a, a, a Danish philosopher, Kierkegaard, who said something to the effect of, I'm paraphrasing, life must be lived forwards, but it makes sense looking backwards. And so as I look back on my journey, like so often times we make decisions or we do things in the moment and we don't know why. And we're just trying to follow our internal compass and guide these things called values and beliefs. But in any role that I've had, I've always been entrepreneurial when inside of large organizations, like the first couple that I that I worked at, I was intrapreneurial and always coming up with an idea of how how I felt things could be better, typically always around the employee engagement uh, side of things, because that's my passion. I just, I, you know, we spend what, 90,000 hours of our lives working, we may as well enjoy those hours. And you know, we can work on decidedly pretty uninspiring things, but as long as we have healthy, good cultures and relationships, we can make the pretty mundane and boring stuff quite awesome because we because we have each other and we have relationships. So I always gravitated toward flow theory and positive psychology and strengths and purpose and fulfillment. And that was just my lens and still is. And so, yeah, so I, I graduated Ivy, as you know, in 2009, joined a rotational leadership development program. My first day on the job, a thousand people were let go post-merger. And I was like, okay, this is how it's going to be. Um, that was an amazing growing experience to learn more about myself and the impact of leadership behavior and culture on people's performance and well-being. I was fired from that job for mentoring a number of interns, a disproportionate number of which turned down full-time job opportunities, citing conversations with this guy. You were too uh, good. <laughs> rebel with a cause, something like that. Yeah. I was, yeah. Anyway, I was perhaps toxic inside of a toxic culture and a, a, a negative times a negative is a positive, right? Then I, I did a quick stint. I, I, I came across Simon Sinek's work. A friend introduced it to me. And I remember I went for dinner with someone that I was introduced with, a guy by the name of James Powell, who was becoming a certified leadership and life coach. And I remember I said to him, this would have been in June of 2010. I said to him, I was about to move into a marketing role. And I said, I don't know how to do marketing for an organization where I don't believe what they sell or how they sell it. And he went, watch this video. And he emailed me. Simon Sinek's How Great Leaders Inspire Everyone to Take Action, TEDx Talk with the Golden Circle. People don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. And I successfully procrastinated for about two months and didn't watch it. <laughs> then I finally did in August or September and loved that video. A couple months later, after I had already been drawing golden circles on napkins and sharing them with anyone who would listen... I went to a conference, The Art of Management, in November of 2010 to hear Malcolm Gladwell speak, uh, author of Outliers and David Goliath, and Goliath, great, great thinker and writer and storyteller. Simon spoke just before him. And I, I had found my orator, like I had found my visionary. 
you know, Simon describes a, a more inspired, safe and fulfilled world. And I'm like, yep, that's what I want. And so fortunately, I was able to join forces with Simon through some guile, elbow grease and networking, joined his team, the fourth person to join his team back in 2011-12, spent an amazing 10-year journey with him and his team building up that organization. And then, yeah, I mean, uh, over the years, I had been asked because I would give lots of talks and workshops and be on stage. And I would be asked, when are you going to write a book of your own working for a prolific author? I guess it's a natural question. And my response had always been if and when I ever come across something worth writing about. And just over two years ago, it would have been June, July 2021. I had just made a conscious effort, Brenda, to start saying yes to more opportunities in 2021. It was mid-COVID, you know, I was ready for some new and different things. And, you know, because I have a, a profile on LinkedIn and a, a network, I would get random requests of, can you come speak at this, that, or the other event? And I just started saying yes, bringing my own content, even though I didn't have any yet. <laughs> but I just sort of put myself in a pressure cooker where I had to come up with some of my my own ideas. And through that experience, the the book Speak a Culture was was born. So um yeah, it's been an amazing two years working on that and it comes out October 3rd. Oh, amazing. And and I love uh, where you started with this in terms of sometimes you just cannot connect the dots unless you you look back into your life and how all of these experiences, although uh, living and breathing at it at the time, probably was not pleasant for your first work experience and getting fired. But all of no. these things, I think, all play a role and are building blocks for you and great content or inspiring content and the motivation to write a book like Speak Up Culture. I listened to the book. I can't wait to get my hands on a physical copy coming soon. But I listened to it and I actually listened to it three times mm. uh, because I thought it just it just resonated with the world that we're, we're in today. And you delve into the importance uh, of this for humanity. And yeah. can you elaborate uh, more on this important and honestly time uh, concept? Thank you. And yes, I mean, I fully admit that I wrote a philosophy book disguised as a business book. You know, what I write about, of course, I want to see happen in business because not only is it good for, for business, it's, it's good for people. You know, we know, like I, I, I highlight in the book a number of cases and yes. stories and and industries that are literally life and death. I'm talking aerospace and submarines with the That's Titan it. submersible or That's think it. is, think is what it's called, right? So I, I highlight Boeing 737 Max, like I I highlight healthcare, military, law enforcement, nuclear power, you know. Uh, there are all these industries that if you don't get culture right, the repercussions of failure or of toxicity can be and is death and destruction, bad stuff. Now, what if you're sitting here being like, well, you know, A, I'm not a capital L leader by by title, or B, I don't work in a life and death industry. Well, we know from the research from Gallup, from UKG and the National Institute of Health, that our relationship with our direct boss, so whether you are a leader or you have a leader, our relationship, or by the way, if you're an entrepreneur, your relationships with your clients, <laughs> um, you know, the relationships that we have at work, 
And specifically, the, the, the stat is that our relationship with our boss has more of an impact on our health than that of our relationship with our family doctor or our therapist, if we have one. And it's, it's crazy to par. think. It's amazing to think that, but that's so and true. And it's true. And it's yeah. at par, the impact of the relationship with our boss is at par to, to the impact on our health with that of our relationship with our life partner, if we have one as well. And so what what higher stake is there? And so what I point out is that if you're in a role of leadership, you have a life-feeding or life-depleting impact on the people around you. Proceed with care and caution. When I go into what's really at stake, I also speak, though I claim not to be an expert whatsoever, I speak about diversity, equity, and inclusion. I speak about supporting those with marginalized identities and minorities. I speak about the discourse, the healthy discourse that we need in society today. Um, especially as we look to, I visit and go to the United States a lot. You know, it's up here in Canada, our our neighbors to the south of us impact our culture hugely here in, in Canada. We're very linked in, in many ways, distinct, separate, and linked. Um, and so I, I see the polarization in society there. I see the lack of tolerance for one another and our identities. I see certain folks with certain identities being attacked because they exist. Might I remind us that we started this conversation speaking about the Holocaust? Yes. Um, of which not just Jews, but people of color and those who identify as LGBTQ. It, it, like there are certain folks who were targeted systematically by Nazi Germany. You look at what's happening in the world today and the polarization and some of law and reform or lack of reform that is coming in, it is dangerous. It's disheartening. It's scary. It is, dare I say, inhumane. And what I want to see more of in the world is for us to embrace our differences and embrace what makes us unique because it can make us stronger. You know, some of my best friends have different religions than I have, have different political views than I have, and they are fantastic, different gender. They are fantastic human beings, and we share values and beliefs, even though we disagree on things like gun reform, abortion, <laughs> around homosexuality and, I, and identity, but we can actually have productive conversations where I am curious about what they think and how and how how they view and I think anyone is entitled to any view that they want so long as it is your view and you do not impose that view upon others like you're allowed to believe and practice your world and life the way you want to there's a brilliant Trevor Noah piece around abortion around you know there's a culture and identity of a of a country you know ergo we should be able to make a decision that uh, impacts all citizens. Well, but wait a second. There are blue states and red states, and there are subcultures in Idaho versus California. And maybe it's the state level that should make these decisions. Well, wait a second. There are different pockets within these states and certain cities and areas. And maybe it's the municipality. Wait a second. It could be communities. No, it could be homes. Wait a second. Each and every individual ought to have the human right to make the decision that is best for them. And there's a certain age upon which and and maturity and 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 
development that we ought to take. But, you know, I think we can each hold our views so long as they are our views and we do not impose upon them for others to have to comply to our version of what we think humanity ought to be. Let it yeah. be. Yeah. Here, here. So that's, on, that's on what's that really way. at stake and what I, I try to delve into in that, that it was a hard chapter for me to write, but one I'm really proud of. It's a challenging topic these days. And you alluded to stories of individuals who show up at Thanksgiving, families at Thanksgiving dinners. And let's face it, in the last three years, I believe it's been amplified, where having conversations around certain landmine topics uh, definitely could explode and families being you know, ripped apart politically or, or beliefs otherwise. And so I love that. I love that the timing of this book is something that is needed for humanity and the distilling it through the corporate channel, because that's where a lot of the change can happen is through the corporate channel. To your point, people work, you know, 40, 50, 60, 70 hours. They spend the vast majority of their, their life at work. And that's where their values are not only entrenched, but amplified. Mm-hmm. And so or, or would, even shaped, <laughs> shaped, shaped sometimes as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for better or for absolutely. worse. Yeah. Absolutely. I'd love to hear your perspective, sort of flipping the conversation on its head, because this seems like we're having this conversation. We're like, yes, this seems like this is how the world should be. And it really is not. Uh, but what would you say is the downside then and the risk of developing a speak up culture and organizations? Well, so the the thesis of the book, because... What I want to caution folks against is, yes, I've written a book called Speak Up Culture, but that doesn't mean speak up all the times, all the places, everywhere. (laughs) This didn't make the cut into the book because I learned about it after the fact, after we said, yes, print. There's a Venn diagram that is credited to comedian Craig Ferguson of, does it need to be said? Does it need to be said now? And does it need to be said by me? And if the answer to all three is yes, go for it. If it needs to be said now, but not by you, that's really interesting. So this brings me to the thesis of the book. The thesis of of the book is a speak up culture is an environment in which people feel that it is both safe, psychologically safe and worth it. There's a a perception of positive impact. So there are many relationships and not many. There are some relationships, maybe many in my life and career where I don't speak up. Like it's just it's not safe, it's not worth it, or it might be safe, but it's not worth it. Or it's worth it, but it's not safe. And that's where courageous leadership comes in or sometimes whistleblowing. And so, yeah, a a speak up culture is one in which leaders make it both safe and worth it for people to overcome that fear of speaking up because it is never a fearless act. It is always with fear, but you're connected to something more important than the fear that you you lean in, you step up, and you speak up with tact, with situational awareness, with emotional intelligence, though not all the time. Uh, again, it's important for us to reward the behavior and or rather reward the intent and coach the behavior and the impact. And that brings up the point that leaders play such a significant role. It's not to be taken lightly when one accepts a role as a leader. And let's face it, many of us experience poor leadership in their in their past, whether it comes from working for a a boss who is a micromanager, uh, is is amplifying a toxic work culture or just ill equipped to to effectively lead. 
goodness knows, I know I have my war stories. I won't bore the audience with with those today, maybe sometime. Yeah. But yeah. it absolutely I'm sure they're not be- boring, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, they absolutely have inspired what I do in my my coaching practice. And I know you and I can nerd out on on all of those pieces, but thoughts around how many leaders today really just are not set up and equipped for success and maybe what might we be able to do to change this? Yeah. So when I make the distinction, again, I don't think I did said this in the book, but I do now. I make the distinction between capital L and lowercase l leaders. So a capital L leader is someone who has the formal title. They literally have a role of leadership, which means the responsibility to lead is heightened. Now, just because you have the 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 title doesn't mean you have the behavior. We've all met or know those who have a position of authority, but do not lead. And people might do as they say out of fear or necessity, perceived necessity, but they wouldn't follow them. Those are drivers and not leaders. There's also lowercase l leadership in which folks don't have the role or the title, but they have the behavior. Um, Leadership is a behavior. My favorite quote on leadership comes from my dear friend, Rich Devaney, who wrote the book, The Attributes and is a retired uh, Navy SEAL commander. And Rich says of leadership, leaders aren't born, leaders aren't made, leaders are chosen based upon the way that they behave. Sure, there are some of us who are born with some of the more innate attributes of what it means to lead. And yes, leadership is developed. You have to uh, want to commit to the practice of what it means to be a leader. But ultimately, we judge you on your behavior. Just because you were born with some of the natural attributes and have some of the skills, just because you practice it sometimes doesn't mean you are it all the time. You consistently have to show up every day and behave as a leader does. Now the question is, what are leadership behaviors? Well, I don't know all of them all the time, but I got a good idea on some. Leaders exhibit empathy and compassion. Leaders are authentic and consistent. Doesn't mean they're warm right? You can actually be pretty cold, but consistent. And I we know where like how to interact with you, right? But you can still be cold and care. Like caring and warmth aren't necessarily positively correlated all the time. You can still care without being a warm human being. Leaders are decisive and yet they're they're accountable. They make decisions, but then they own it. And when things go well, they give credit to others. And when things don't go well, they take responsibility. Leaders have a service orientation. It's by the way, leadership is broken because we don't we have a term called servant leadership. We don't need that term. If 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 leadership actually worked, like to lead means to serve. If you're in charge but not serving, you're just in charge. You're you're not a leader. So there's a there's a trifecta of chapters in the book, as you know, Brenda, called define leadership or leadership defined, select better leaders against that definition, and then help leaders lead. And that's what I think that 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 we need. First and foremost, I think we ought to provide a standard definition of what leadership means so people know what they're signing up for or what they've accepted or what they're working toward, um, which is not being a top performer. It's about helping others perform and grow um, and do it in a way with character um, and with kindness and respect. And then I, you know, there's a there's a stat done by Zenger that showed 
that they they pulled about 15,000 or so folks that they've done leadership training with across industries. And they found that on average, the average age of when folks took a leadership role first time was 29. 29 years old was when they first had a management role. The average age of when those same folks got their first formal leadership training, 39. There's a 10-year gap between when we put people in these positions and then when we actually teach them and help them develop and give them space to grow as leaders. you know, And though business and organizations and organizational cultures, it, it's not a family, people like to say, oh, it's like a family around here. Sure, unless it's a family business of which all employees are family members, it is not a family. However, I don't think, and case in point, you can't really fire your kid. And sometimes yes. folks need to be fired <laughs> or it's best that they are fired. I'm not a fan of mass layoffs, but if someone repeatedly lives outside of the value set of the organization after repeated feedback, coaching, discipline if necessary, offer them to the competition, right? But there is, I don't think, any better analogy to what it means to be a leader uh, as to what it means to be a good parent. And it's it's not pampering. It's not wrapping your your team members in in bubble wrap. It's not <laughs> effective parenting. Um, effective parenting is I'm here to help you form your own identity. I'm here to help you understand your strengths. I'm here to help you feel responsibly. I, I'm here to do everything in my power such that you become the best version of you. That's leadership. That's parenting at its best. And I, it was so insightful in, because there was a chapter in the book where you, you speak to that. I believe you reference what Bob Chapman, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And, and, and that is being such a strong, strong analogy. The, yeah, the, the, there's a, there's an epigraph in the book from Chapman, which is, what did he, what did he say? Everything I learned about parenting is leadership and everything I learned about leadership is wrong. <laughs> so good. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. I do like the frame that leadership is a behavior and the the differentiator or the this small L and the the capital L, I suppose. Yep. Let's hone in on the small L for a moment, because I think mm -hmm. a lot of employees can play a big role in developing, enhancing the employee voice within an organization. It's not without great big L leadership as well, but I think a lot of people may say, well, I'm just an employee. What can I do? I'm just going to be a victim of this culture. But yeah. from your perspective and from your years of coaching and research on this topic, I'd love to understand what can the small L or uh, the employee, what role can employees play to help enable a speak up culture? A, a huge amount. I mean, a couple things come to mind. One, the tail can wag the dog, uh, meaning that, you know, you can spark and create change from the bottom or the middle of the organization. In fact, middle the middle of the organization is where change lives and dies. And, and senior leaders ought to be envious of those in the middle because they're the only folks inside of an organization that have multi-directional influence. Those managers or folks, leaders in the middle can influence up, they can influence side to side, and they influence down. What leaders do, capital L or lowercase l, by behavior, is they're aware enough to go, hmm, there's opportunity to do something here. Hmm, someone should do something about this. And then they go, huh, I'm someone. I can do something about this. I can't do it all. I can't do it all on my own. 
but they have some sort of vision or are inspired by a vision and then they behave into it. That's it. And, you know, this stuff works at its best when it is both an evolution and a revolution. You know, evolution is top down. Revolution is bottom up. Evolution is typically less violent. Revolutions are typically more violent. And I, w- I want us to meet in the middle. You know, change works at its best when you have leaders who are pointing the, the way and modeling the behavior to get there and then enlisting and finding folks who want to be part of that future to behave into it with them. And then in our cultures, we get the behavior that we reward and we get the behavior that we tolerate. Tolerating behavior is a passive form of rewarding it. So if you say, you know, we actually want to put sustainability and human beings growing and not burning out, but yet you still reward the toxic individual performer who burns themselves out and their teams out, you know, you're not going to get a cultural change. It's just nice words. So, I mean, those are a few ideas. I'm curious to know what it sparks uh, for you. Well, I love the idea of be the change uh, and, and, this idea of the magnet, so to speak, if you want to see more kindness at work and tolerance, demonstrate it, show it. So leading by example, and the idea that also we as humans are designed that way, we've got these things called mirror neurons, right, that we yeah. pick up behaviors from others. And so I love that the middle of the organization, how that that they are in a special role, those individuals yeah. that are in the middle of the organization, they actually have like a significant amount of power. And I often feel it would be great to educate more people. I didn't realize this until our conversation today. And people even just knowing that you have that much more power than you think, just because you do not have a capital L as yep. a title as well. And I mean, and and be the change is is both brilliant and empowering and really hard to hear. Like be be the change is, you know, step up, rise above, lead, even though you're not being led. Like it sucks. And it's leadership and it's the cost of leadership. And so what I would say to you is, is if you see someone who's trying to do it the right way, tell them, I see what you're doing. Like give them a positive FBI. My favorite framework for feedback is FBI, feeling behavior impact. You know, you know, catch people doing the right thing and tell them if you want to see more of it and then do it yourself. I think that's, I love the catch people doing the right thing. I absolutely resonated with the part in the book that dives into feedback. I worked in an organization and for a, a leader that the mantra was feedback is a gift. And that was a mm-hmm. quote within the book. And absolutely feedback can be a gift. When... <laughs> not, not all feedback is a gift though. Keep <laughs> yeah. going. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It can be, it can be a yeah. gift. Yeah. Feedback it, can it... also be a weapon. <laughs> absolutely absolutely yeah. and and i think the organization actually prided themselves on this that it turned out to be you know we talk about feedback rich environment or feedback friendly it turned out it was more of a feedback rich environment versus friendly so i mm-hmm. I, I i really love the simplicity of the fbi framework uh, a lot yeah. of times people are given the feedback sandwich and but i think there's a lot more sophistication but simplicity to like that it it resonates very quickly and can be easily put into action yeah. So one 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 comment here is the thing with feedback that I think a lot of leaders get in trouble with is they tend to think that their feedback is fact and feedback is not fact it is about your opinion and ought to be based on real behaviors or your perception of fact. But I I'm thinking of one leader I had in particular 
who is more senior to me. They were in the C-suite and they were a part owner of the company. And they would deliver feedback with me quite frequently. And anytime it was delivered, it was done when it was convenient for them. And it was uh, always negative. I would say, you know, for any one positive bit of feedback, there was at least 20 or 25 negative or constructive, but it was always delivered. <laughs> yeah. It was always delivered as here's what you've done wrong. Do better, fix it without any, like the purpose of feedback is to open dialogue such that we can grow as individuals and together. And so I love this FBI formula and I even throw in a, in, in a kicker. So I, I joke that, you know, one-liners are good for jokes, but not so good when it comes to giving feedback. So for example, Brenda, great job today. And you're like, thanks. Like, I don't know what I did to, to deserve it. I, I don't know if he's being real or sincere. And I also have no idea what to do next time to earn said great job again. Or I could go FBI, you know, I feel supported and excited that's the feeling behavior for your level of preparation for how much you evidently care about this in your podcast and your audience. And the impact is like, I'm, I'm all in. And when are we doing this again? You know, that's way better than great job. Uh, on the constructive side, follow the FBI and then add an open-ended question. So I'm making this up because this didn't happen, but I could say, Brenda, I feel frustrated, quite frankly, and like confused when you were late to three important client meetings last week. And the impact is I'm not really sure what's going on with you. And if I'm really honest, I'm doubting your ability to deliver on what you said you're going to deliver upon. What's going on? Like, this isn't like you, you know? And maybe you could say, oh, I I've have a sick pet at home, or I'm having trouble with my children's education, or I have too much on my plate, but I was, I was afraid, like, it opens dialogue, you know, which could include, I think you're wrong, and I'm doing just fine. <laughs> it's like, well, I believe otherwise, you know, now we have an issue, you know, so the purpose of of, of feedback is to highlight the behavior you want more of as well as point out the behavior and the impact that isn't working and then begin an open dialogue. Yeah. I think that gets lost with a lot of leaders and people giving feedback. The idea of, the, the, the let's start really at the very baseline. What is the purpose and the point of this? And, and that it opens up a dialogue. I also can appreciate the, the comment, feedback is not fact. Mm -hmm. uh, there, it, it reminded me of an analogy of Jamie Kern, Kern Lima. She's the author of Believe It. So she was the founder of It Cosmetics, sold to L'Oreal for a billion dollars. I have been meaning to do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've been meaning to do that. Yeah. You, know, you know, the rags to riches, the typical rags to riches story. But she nice. talks about uh, this idea of a megaphone that the analogy of having a megaphone, that you can shut that megaphone off. You you can pick and choose who you hand the megaphone to. And you like, you do not need to take that feedback necessarily. You can take it in as data, information, process it, and decide what to do with it. So feedback. So it's the same analogy as feedback not, is not fact as well. 
Oh boy, Stephen, <laughs> we could nerd out about so many different topics. It was really, truly hard for me. I'm totally going off script here. Not that I have a real yeah. formal script, but it was really hard for me to hone in on a few different areas to highlight. So I want to thank you so much for coming. Is there anything else in terms of the book or a question you were hoping or a topic that you're hoping we could unpack for, for my audience today before I have a few final questions and get ourselves wrapped up? I mean, I, I, the, the thing that just prompts to mind for me right now is greatness is on the other side of discomfort. You know, growth is on the other side of discomfort. And so I just, I really want both individuals and teams and organizations and society to embrace more discomfort. I think if we embrace more discomfort, having hard conversations, feeling offended, but yet sharing, wow, that really challenges or hurts me, but having safe and worth it environments to delve into those hard topics just allows us to grow better and grow better together. So I just, I, I hope this conversation helps folks and equips people with tools to actually do that. And that's the piece that I love about the book and our conversation today. It's not just sitting on a high mountain saying we should, should, should do all of these things. It's actually giving people a real toolkit and equipping them with some skills, helping to equip people with skills to be able to navigate whether it's the, these difficult conversations or putting themselves outside of the comfort, uh, their own comfort zones. I'm going to put you on the spot here for a moment and because mm -hmm. I appreciate that all your chapters in your books might be like all your children. But if you <laughs> had to, and not that I encourage anybody reading one chapter, you need to read the whole book. And, and if people could only read one chapter, which chapter would you encourage that they read and why? Oh, that's a hard question. I mean, I, I did write the book. There, there are some books that are written intentionally that you can open it up in many places and sort of just start and choose your own adventure and get for it, what it from, from you want. I intentionally wrote this book with an arc and I intentionally wrote it for people to read it in order. And I hope it is engaging and concise enough for people to to do so and want to do so. Uh, I've heard some fun stories of people either reading or listening to the book in like a matter of a day or, or two or three days, which is awesome. So my, I, I at risk of breaking rules, which I'm good at doing, my I my answer is twofold. I have a I have an an answer of like if I want folks to read one thing just to understand the thesis and what I mean by the concept and what I'm trying to describe and bring to life, it would be chapter three, speak up, why don't you? Just from a, the thesis is a speak up culture is when people feel and leaders create an environment in which it is safe and it is worth it. Make it safe and make it worth it for people to speak up, to share ideas, feedback, concerns, disagreements, mistakes. Um, That's from the academic and conceptual base the the chapter that every time i read it i i get emotional is the last chapter chapter 11 and it's personal so that that's the other answer and for me a it's my story and it's my vulnerability and it's my purpose you know i've i've found purpose in helping people communicate their ideas and feelings in ways that they can understand themselves and connect with others. I also, you know, my purpose is around leaders creating environments in which people's voices are nurtured, not punished or suppressed or, or, or shrunk. And for all, leadership is a personal endeavor. And so when people 
you know, I think so often in business, we say, don't take it personally. It's just business or don't bring your, 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 your personal life into business or, or, you know, don't be who you are at work. It's like, really? Like, come on. Business is personal because it's, it's human. Bring your personal life and your personality in, into your work and work life because it's about work-life harmony and integration, not separation, in my humble opinion, at its best. I know there are some folks that can't do that and need to compartmentalize for their health with where they're at. Okay. But I think at its best, it's one life and it should be work-life, not balance. That's opposing scales. It should be work-life harmony or or integration. And so, yeah, I mean, selfishly, uh, it's chapter three for the academic and like the thesis and then chapter 11, it's personal because it's the chapter that every time I read, I, I choke up. It is, it is personal and it totally, this we're, we're aligned on so many different values, philosophies, which is obviously why we're having this great conversation today. And the idea that me as a career happiness coach, one of my big mantras and, and missions is to help people look forward to Mondays more, mm-hmm. but bring their best and real self to work. And I say most days because we're human as well. And and it's yeah. that idea of the real self to work. So I believe that this book mm. plays at both helping equip people with uh, the tools, the confidence, the skill set, and 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 the buy-in, because there's a lot of stories and and research referenced as well to buy into the idea that this is possible, that people can bring their their real and best self to work. Before I wrap up, I have one final question. I call it a happiness hack, but mm. I would love to hear perhaps even if, a, a hack or a suggestion, a piece of advice in terms of something that maybe that that you integrate into your life to make sure that you're living your best life and mo- most meaningful life. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so this might be con- contentious, but when I look at happiness, I view happiness as a fleeting emotion. Like sometimes yeah. we're happy and sometimes we're not. And I love that you say, you know, show up happy to work m- most Mondays um, because Sometimes it's a Monday morning and you had an exhausting weekend with your kids or you're caring for a sick parent or you hurt your leg this, that, or the other, and you're not so freaking happy to be there and that's yeah. okay, you know? Or you or you don't have a great relationship with your boss at present. Like life is real. But I think what we can have, we can strive to pursue all the time is fulfillment. For me, the way I define fulfillment is using our strengths to contribute towards something bigger than ourselves that we care about. It's purpose, right? So for me, my <laughs> my hack to happiness is is don't make that the the goal or the pursuit. Make fulfillment yeah, the goal like and the that. pursuit. I love that. Well, very well, very well put. I can't thank you enough. I have gone well over the time I promised that I would take here. So thank you for this extra time. But I think there was just so much gold in our discussion today. I do want to wish you the best with the book. It is an instant classic. I'm not just saying this because you're a guest on my podcast. I genuinely thought it hit all the high notes of, of what a leadership book should be. And it resonates with where the world is at today. Thank you, Brenda. And my instruction is more people befriend Brenda so that she sends you a copy of my book. That would be very happy for me. So thank you. A joy to join you. And I hope this conversation is valuable to your listeners. Thank you. Amazing. Cheers.
hope you enjoyed this episode of the TGIM podcast. If you connected with anything that was discussed, I'd love to hear your thoughts. You can reach me at brendapearsoncoaching.ca. Follow me on LinkedIn, where I'm pretty active. Or feel free to drop me an email at brenda at brendapearsoncoaching.ca. If you like this podcast, please rate us in your favorite podcast app and write a review. It helps others find the show and helps get the word out to a wider audience. We'll be releasing a new episode the first Monday of each month, so we won't flood your feed. Rather, we're focusing on delivering thoughtful and relevant content that you can look forward to. Special shout out goes to Carrie Janice Communications for producing this episode. Subscribe now to be sure you don't miss an episode. Have a happy day. Cheers.